Welcome back to Talks on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I am your instructor, David O. Gray, Master of Arts in Theology. And we begin in Nomina Pacis, Filio Espiritu Sancti. In this talk, I'll be highlighting section two called The Celebration of the Christian Mystery, started in paragraph 1066. And we will also complete section one in this part. And that section is called The Sacramental Economy, which starts in paragraph 1076 and ends in paragraph 1209. I find it profoundly beautiful how the Catholic Church has transitioned through its teaching in this book, starting with explaining how we have capacity to believe, to have faith in God's revelation, and then to the creed, where we confess our belief and faith in God's revelation. And now to the celebration of the Christian mystery, where the church teaches us how we are called to live out our faith in what we believe. And remember, in context of the creed, everything else that we're going to discuss in the catechism now relates to the life of the Holy Spirit and his joint mission with Christ Jesus. From the liturgy to the sacraments to the commandments to Christian prayer, we will still be technically in the last part of the creed concerning the third person of the Holy Trinity, his nature, life, and mission, joint mission with Christ Jesus. So we have much to discuss in that regard in this section. It is not very long as far as number of paragraphs, but here we will build a foundation here in this talk and and also in a talk about the sacrament of baptism next, which will then carry us through the remainder of the way. Again, the purpose of this lecture is not to walk you through each of those paragraphs, but rather to supplement your own reading of them by adding context, color, and connecting it to the liturgy of the church so that you might, might both better understand and appreciate the rich theology of the Catholic Church and discover how the church is leading and guiding us to live our lives liturgically. So the structure of this talk will be to discuss this section in four parts. First, I'm going to speak about the liturgy in general. What is a liturgy? Second, liturgy as a blessing. Third, liturgy as a work within God's economy of salvation. Fourth, liturgy as timeless. And fifth, the diversity of liturgy. Concerning liturgy in general, the Catechism of the Catholic Church opens this section as it ought by defining the terms of the conversation. That is, what it means, what the church means by the term liturgy. Then it discusses why liturgy, who benefits from liturgy. And later in part two, the catechism will get to the remainder of the question words, such as how is the liturgy celebrated, who celebrates it, 
and where I am, where and when is the liturgy celebrated? But in paragraph 1066, the catechism wants to explain the synonymous terms of mystery and economy, both of which are essential for us to understand for the remainder of this unit on the sacraments of the church. By Christian mystery, the church is echoing the Apostle Paul from his letter to the Ephesians, especially from chapter 3, where Paul refers to God's drawing the Gentiles into his plan for salvation through Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, that the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly earlier. When you read this, you understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to human beings in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and co-partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When Paul references his earlier mention, he is pointing to Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 7, verse 9, which reads, In him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of transgressions in accord with the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will in accord with his favor that he set forth in him as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. In other texts, such as Romans chapter 16, verse 25, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, the Apostle Paul also defines mystery as a secret of God, which has now been revealed. That is, the plan of salvation through the body of Christ. Therefore, mystery in the Catholic context is not what we do not know, but what has been revealed to us yet, of which our full understanding is limited. In particular, according to what the Catholic Catechism calls the mystery of the Father's will. As salvation history proceeds, more about this mystery and the Father's plan will be revealed to us. But the fullness of it remains a mystery, even to the Son who said, But of that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. The soteriological term, Christian mystery, is also what the patristics called economy of the word incarnate or economy of salvation. While these terms, Christian mystery and economy of salvation, are synonymous, it is my preference to use the economy of salvation term in these talks, primarily because we can pack more into the term and explain more concepts through it. 
The word economy itself in the Greek is okonomia, means household management. So the economy of salvation is how God manages his household. Also within an economy, there are things such as goods, services, gains, losses, sacrifices, all the things we will be discussing in the remainder of these talks. So we build more concepts and analogy with an economy more than we can with a mystery as our construct. But what's important here is what's important for us to know again, that the Catholic teaching and the Catholic teaching a mystery is simply what has been partially revealed about the plan for salvation through Christ Jesus, and some of which we will never know. And it's a mystery. <laughs> now, within an economy, we should find people working, serving, and participating in that economy. As such, Paragraph 1069 of the Catholic Catechism reads, The word liturgy originally meant a public work or a service in the name of, on behalf of, the people. In Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people in God in the work of God. Through the liturgy, Christ, our Redeemer, and High Priest, continues the work of redemption in, with, and through his church. Through the liturgy, the people of God serve and participate in the redemptive work of God to bring us all to the knowledge of truth, holiness, and salvation. God is still at work to bring to fullness his love in creation, and through the liturgy and the fruits of the liturgy in us, we participate in that work. Or, as St. Augustine wrote, The God who created us without our cooperation will not save us without our cooperation. The church as the body of Christ and inseparable from its life, breath, the Holy Spirit, is at work in the world through us in three ways. First, to proclaim the Word of God. Second, to celebrate the sacraments. And third, to perform works of charity. It is these three duties of the church that the Catechism calls an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. And as paragraph 1017 of the Catechism Catholic Church states, As the work of Christ, liturgy is also an action of his church. It makes the church present and manifests her as the visible sign of the communion in Christ between God and men. It engages the faithful in the new life of the community and involves the conscious active, and fruitful participation of everyone. The reality of a blessing being attached to work is also a biblical principle. The second chapter of Genesis, um, there we read that after the first Adam, 
was created. He was given work to do. He was told by God to cultivate and care for the Garden of Eden. And God also gave him the work of naming all the wild animals and all the birds of the air, through which man discovered that he was not alone. So the Lord then blessed Adam with a suitable partner formed out of his own rib. Likewise, the new Adam, Christ Jesus, eternally begotten by the Father, was sent into the world to do the work of love. Whereas the first Adam named all the animals, the new Adam gave one man a new name, Kepa, through which he would build his instruments of work in the world, the church. And through the work of Christ on the cross, we were blessed with the gift of salvation indeed. Doing good work and being blessed because of it is both a principle we seem to just innately know, but also one that God has revealed to us in many ways. Yet the question logically that logically follows then is that why is it that we are commanded to participate in the liturgy on all Sundays and Holy Days obligation? Should not blessings come freely? without any form of compulsion? Here it is imperative that we acknowledge the inseparability, the inseparable relationship between law and work. Just as in the preceding talk, we acknowledge the inseparability of Christ Jesus, the law in the flesh, with the Holy Spirit, the ongoing work of the law in the world. So what is the relationship between the law and the liturgy? Well, of course, we could point to the fact of how the liturgy repetitiously forms us in virtuous habits that orders our free will to always make the right choices in obeying the divine law. That is true. But let us move to the end goal of the purpose of the law and the liturgy. That is. Because the law and the liturgy share the same source, which is the Holy Trinity, therefore they share the same ends, which is our good. As evident in the blessing attached to the fourth commandment, that if we obey our father and mother, our days will be long. All the words of Psalm number 119 that sings of all the blessings of the law. The blessings that Christ Jesus attached to the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount that we are that we often call to be attitudes, the blessed are you statements, and the blessings attached to following all the commandments, such as what we hear from the book of Sirach in chapter 15. If you choose, you can keep the commandments, they will save you. It proves from all these things that God gave us the law so that we will obey it, and by obeying it, we will be blessed. Similarly, the church teaches in paragraph 1082 in the Catechism of Catholic Church that in the church's liturgy, 
the divine blessing is fully revealed and communicated. The Father is acknowledged and adored as a source in the end of all the blessings of creation and salvation. In His Word, who became incarnate, died, and rose for us, He fills us with His blessings. Through His Word, He pours into our hearts the gift that contains all gifts, the Holy Spirit. Even James, in chapter 1, verse 17, speaks of the law which cannot change. In the same way as we speak of the liturgy which the church teaches, cannot change. At least a part of it which we'll discuss later. He spoke of it in this way, writing, All good giving in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. Therefore, we should not think of the law in the economy of salvation as something arbitrarily dictated, but rather as a blessing we can freely choose, but one which the church is forming our conscience through the liturgy to always choose rightly. There's a final point I would like to offer about the relationship between the law and the liturgy. If the law and the liturgy have been given to us to be our blessing, then it therefore follows that the further the world gets away from the divine law and the further it gets away from living the liturgy, the less blessed the world would be, the darker it would be. Truly, we have more work to do in this world to show it the beauty and blessedness of God. And that work always begins with us becoming a liturgical people. In other words, being that the liturgy of the Mass bestows upon us a blessing, we are called to share that blessing with the world rather than try to improperly contain that blessing all for ourselves. Liturgy as a work of God in salvation history has three clear examples of the, what I call the four movements in the Divine Symphony in my book, The Divine Symphony. The first is in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, where we read that Ezra and a priest brought the law before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and those children old enough to understand. The place where they assembled was the water gates, which for Christians is the symbol of the baptismal font inside the church, traditionally placed right at the opening where we enter. Before Ezra read from the scroll at the wooden platform, he opened it, and all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people, their hands raised high, answered, Amen! Amen! They then knelt down and bowed before the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then as Ezra read clearly from the book of the law of God, the Levites helped people understand the law. And they gave the sense so that the 
people understood the reading. After this liturgy of the word and homily had concluded, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites ordered the people to go eat rich food and drink sweet wine and allot portions to those who had nothing prepared. For today is holy to our Lord. And then the Levites quieted all the people saying, Silence! Today is holy! Do not be saddened. Then all the people began to eat and drink. While this feast that these Jews were partaking in was not the Holy Eucharist, the events of that day apparently consisted of an opening rite, a liturgy of the law, and a feast which would have been concluded with some type of song, blessing, and prayer. While this liturgy of Ezra seems familiar to us Catholics, and as paragraph 1096 of the Catechism of Catholic Church notes, there also are similarities between Jewish liturgy and Christian liturgy today. We, but we need to remember, the church teaches, that the, in Jewish liturgy, in particular in their Passover liturgy, it is only concerned with a history that is tending toward the future. While for Christians, it is a Passover already fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ, though always in expectation of its definitive consummation. In the New Testament, the clearest example of today's liturgy derives from St. Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, where he offers instructions on how to celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist. And in chapter 14, verses 26 through 40, he gives instruction on how the liturgy of the word might be conducted, saying, decently and in order. Based upon this evidence, it would be far from unreasonable in terms of a supposition to say that these Christians, many of whom were Jews, would have had prefaced or concluded these two movements with an opening and closing rite of prayers and songs, just as they would have for any other of their liturgical feasts. We see some liturgy here. The third example for, from sacred scripture uh, concerning similarities with liturgy, where we can find the liturgy in scripture, concerning the Catholic Mass, is the vision that Christ Jesus gave John, the author of Revelation in chapter 4, saying, At once I was caught up in spirit. A throne was there in heaven, and on the throne sat one of those appearances sparkled like jasper or carnelian. Around the throne was a halo, as brilliant as an emerald. Surrounding the throne, I saw four other thrones, on which twenty-four elders sat, dressed in white garments and with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning 
rumblings, and peals of thunder. Seven flaming torches burned in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In front of the throne was something that resembled a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center and around the throne, there were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first creature resembled a lion. The second one, like a calf. The third had a face like a human being. And a fourth like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were covered with eyes inside and out. Day and night they do not stop exclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw down their crowns before the throne exclaiming, Worthy are you, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things because of your will. They came to be and were created. Not only can we find the liturgy of the Catholic Mass in sacred scripture, but the liturgy itself is an image of salvation history. From the opening procession of the priests and the people, which is our participation in the procession of all the people of God at every Mass, but also a participation in and with all the people of God who have ever processed to their inheritance. The Jews' procession through the Red Sea. Joshua in the Israelites processing into the Promised Land. David processing with the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Christ and the apostles processing to Jerusalem and Christ processing to the cross. Then to the rite of penance, which cleanses us, cleanses the temple of God of any venial sins, thereby opening up our capacity for God's revelation. And then to the liturgy of the word where we receive God's revelation of love, and then to the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist, which makes present again the Paschal mystery of Christ for our celebration and transformation, that is, our divinization to become like what we eat. And where we receive Him who has come, and who comes and are given a foretaste of what it would be like when we have worthily received Christ in this life 
and are judged well when he comes again. And those who did not receive him worthily received their judgment of self-condemnation. Then to the concluding right, or the right of sending, where we are sent out to be a Eucharistic people in the world, which are the acts of the apostles, the acts of those he has sent out. Again, although we speak of Christ himself as being the high priest and chief agency of the sacraments, for example, saying that the liturgy truly communicates Christ, for he, it is he who baptizes, it is truly Christ who is present in the word we hear, it is truly Christ who is present when we pray and sing because he had promised where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And it is truly he who is truly present as the Holy Eucharist. We can still not lose sight of the third person of the Holy Trinity, which is the point paragraph 1108 of the Catechism Catholic Church moves to emphasize writing in every liturgical action, the Holy Spirit is sent in order to bring us into communion with Christ and so to form his body. The Holy Spirit is like the sap of the Father's vine, which bears fruit on his branches. The most intimate cooperation of the Holy Spirit in the church is achieved in the liturgy. The Spirit, who is the Spirit of communion, abides indefectibly in the church. For this reason, the church is the great sacrament of divine communion, which gathers God's gathered children together, communion with the Holy Trinity and fraternal communion are inseparably the fruit of the Spirit in the liturgy. In paragraphs numbered 1113 all the way to 1134, the Catechism gives a summary treatment of the sacramental economy, that is, how the sacraments relate to each other. In this series, we will discuss what is common and distinctive about the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, or chrismation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony, in the upcoming talks on each of them individually. I have noticed that in our common lexicon, we tend to refer to whichever priest who administers the liturgy that day of, of the Mass as the celebrant. Again, according to the teaching of the church, the liturgy is a public work in the service of God's people. Therefore, liturgy is an action of the whole body of Christ. So in this way, we are all celebrants, all of the baptized are celebrants of the liturgy. Drawing again from St. John's vision from the book of Revelation, 
the Catechism of Catholic Church in paragraphs 1137 and 1138 point to the people who John saw during his vision in the liturgy, saying that there were heavenly powers of uh, there was all creation, the four living beings, the there were servants of the old and new covenants, the twenty-four elders, the there was the new people of God, the one hundred and forty-four thousand, especially the the martyrs slain with God's word, and the holy all the all holy mother, the woman. There was the bride of the lamb, and finally there was a a great multitude, which no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and tongues. Therefore, being that it is the whole body of Christ, the ecclesia of God's people assembled with Christ as the head who celebrates the liturgy. We should also remember that not all members of the body of Christ share the same function. According to paragraphs 1142 and 1143 of the Catechism of Catholic Church, certain members are called by God in and through the church to a special service of the community. These servants are chosen and consecrated by the sacraments of holy orders, by which the Holy Spirit enables them to act in the person of Christ, the head, for the service of all members of the church. The ordained minister is, as it were, an icon of Christ the priest, since it is in the Eucharist that the sacrament of the church is made fully visible It is in his presiding at the Eucharist that the bishop's ministry is most evident, as well as in communion with him, the ministry of priests and deacons. For the purpose of assisting the work of the common priesthood of the faithful, other particular ministers also exist not consecrated by the sacraments of holy orders, their functions are determined by the bishops in accord with liturgical traditions and pastoral needs, servers, readers, commentators, and members of the choir also exercise a genuine liturgical function. Concerning the timelessness of the liturgy of the Catholic Mass, the Catechism of the Catholic Church then responds to the question, when is the liturgy celebrated? Well, on a surface, that is really a strange question. Because if the liturgy is the work of us participating in the work of Christ, then when is God not at work? And when should we not then therefore be working? Of course, it's true that a pure sacrifice should be offered from the rising of the sun into a setting as a priest does pray during the Eucharistic prayers and a Novus Ordo rite. Inasmuch as we should love how the church proclaims there be to be um, liturgical seasons, liturgical years, uh, 
Saint Toro, the Saint Toro in the liturgical year, and the Lord's Day as the preeminent day for the liturgical assembly, because it sings to us the truth that we are pilgrims who are always on the way to our new Jerusalem. So it's great that we have a calendar. Yeah, we must also note the danger in promoting the idea that there is a time for church (laughs) and that there is a time for your own stuff. On the contrary, as Pope Benedict XVI wrote in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy, he says that all time belongs to God because God is the Alpha and the Omega. He contains all time in himself. All time is God's time, and time does not belong to us. In fact, the liturgy takes place within the eternal now of God. The liturgy encompasses all of time. Through the liturgy, we are caught up in three phases of time, in fact. We are caught up in past time, immediate time, and future time. The liturgy is the Passover event to the Jews. It is the resurrection event. And it's the communion of saints. The most beautiful thing about the timelessness of, the, of, of liturgical time is in this way is that it does not only touch all of time, but all of time touches us. You see, there is a physicality to the Catholic liturgy that no other religion offers. Every phase of In every phase of the Mass, we are being touched and are touching with our words and actions all of salvation history. In particular, through hearing, reading, praying, confessing, and consuming the Word of God. The God who stepped out of time and space to touch us, to save us, comes again to touch us, to save us, so that He might touch us, to save us, At the end of time, that is the physicality found in the liturgy's communication of the past, immediate, and future in the economy of salvation is one of the most unique things and special things I find about Catholicism and the liturgy is timeless. Now, one might ask, well, if, if all time belongs to God, then does not all space belong to God as well? Therefore, why is the proper setting for the liturgy a physical church building? Paragraph 1186 at the Catechism of the Catholic Church responds to that question in this way. The church has an eschatological significance to enter into the house of God. We must cross a threshold which symbolizes passing from the world wounded by sin to the world of the new life to which all men are called. The visible church is a symbol of the Father's house towards which the people of God is journeying 
and where the Father will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Also, for this reason, the church is the house of all God's children, open and welcoming. Now on to liturgical diversity. When the church speaks of liturgical diversity, the Catechism in the Catholic Church in paragraphs 1200 to 1209 points out that she's referring to two things. First, the diversity amongst all the ancient liturgical traditions, uh, diversity, a diversity that began as soon as the apostles were dispersed to various parts of the world. They had their own liturgies in a sense. And second, the diversity the diverse expressions of the parts of the liturgy amongst the people of God within the new liturgical tradition called the Norvus Ordo. Regardless of liturgical rite, the church teaches that there is an immutable, immutable and mysterious part of the liturgy. It is true essence which is present in every valid liturgy. And the liturgical rites, merely what they're doing is merely delivering to the people of God that essence. And the church is the guardian of that immutable mystery, okay? Now, although the church may on occasion change parts of the celebration of the liturgy to give more people greater access to the Father, the true essence of the liturgy can never be changed because the essence, the, the nature of the church is not a what, but rather a who, the Holy Spirit, whose life mission is to unite us to Christ through the sacraments. Again, the Father is the source and goal of the liturgy because the liturgy is a blessing from God that we receive when we participate in its work. And the joint mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit is to bring us home to the Father. In this way, the liturgy is the most compelling evidence we have that the work of the Holy Spirit is always active because the liturgy is always gathering into itself a community and integrating that community into its nature of love. A diversity of people is gathering through a diversity of his gifts and fruits. One essence, many rites, has always been the Catholic idea. And the notion that we should suppress valid liturgies is an innovation is is probably as innovative as the idea that we should have a liturgical rite where the presider faces the people rather than our source of revelation. In our next encounter, I look forward to sharing with you the church's teaching on the sacrament of baptism through the liturgical sense. Thank you for listening.